0: on the promise of a transformed crisis care continuum begins with a prepared workforce. The crisis call centers answering the calls to 988 stand at the ready as the initial point of contact for individuals who are experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis. With the anticipated call volume expected to double by the end of the first year of implementation, there is a critical need for adequate staffing in call centers. Welcome to our podcast on building the crisis services workforce. My name is Taylor Moore, and I will be the host for this podcast today. I'm a behavioral health researcher at ICF. Today, we are joined by Eric Jacobson from Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners, who will share about the work they've done to develop a prepared and diverse workforce that answers crisis calls in Colorado. I'm also joined by one of our ICF experts on diversity and inclusion, Carrie James. We will discuss ideas for further expanding the cultural responsiveness of the crisis call center workforce. And now I will turn over to each of my guests so they can introduce themselves. Eric, can you tell us a little more about who you are and your role at Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners?
1: Thank you, Taylor. And thanks for having me on the podcast today. My name's Eric Jacobson, and I work for an organization called Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners in the state of Colorado. We answer the Colorado Crisis Line as well as Lifeline, which has now become 988, as you mentioned. I've been with this organization for about three years now um, in varying capacities. I started out as a a crisis specialist, and so that's the person that's answering the crisis line. I did that exclusively for about a year and a half, um, whereupon I've moved into some other areas of our organization. And honestly, I'm not even sure what my title is these days, but I I find myself involved in quite a few different projects, um, including 988 and the preparation and, and launch for that. Um. so i'm excited to, to have a conversation today
0: thank you eric carrie would you like to introduce yourself your background and your role at icf
2: sure thank you taylor <laughs> uh, my name is carrie james i am the vice president for equity and inclusion for icf for our public sector group i am a career a clinical social worker. I have spent the last 25 years of my professional career working in public child welfare and doing that um, specifically in looking at our service provisions and the way that we are meeting the needs of our most vulnerable populations, how we're looking at um, equitable service delivery. In my current role now with ICF, I am taking you know, really all of that work that we've done looking at systems level and helping us as we think about the ways in which we're meeting the needs of our clients across the federal um, structure. As we all know, there has been um, a lot of momentum in the past couple of years around advancing our executive order, focused on uh, specifically looking at equity in federal government and We are looking at wanting to make sure our practices at ICF, the solutions, the way in which we are partnering with our federal clients, the way that we are designing solutions are being done so uh, with equity in mind, with inclusive practices and with diverse representation and perspectives.
0: Thank you, Carrie. And thank you both for joining us today. Uh, To begin, I'd like to hear more from you, Eric, about Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners. And can you briefly describe how your call centers work in the state of Colorado?
1: Sure. Um, So I have been with Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners for about three years, but our organization has been around for for more than 10 years, um, answering the Colorado Crisis Line, and we've started answering Lifeline in 2014. So we've been doing this work for a while. Um, and to help paint the picture, when I started in 2019, uh, we had one call center uh, located in, in the greater Denver area. Um, and, I, and I signed up to be a frontline call taker. I got hired on, and everything we did was in the call center. Um, and, and we had our, our team there, you know, supporting the needs of, of Coloradans. And then something called COVID happened. And that really threw a wrench in our operation, as it did for for many other people. I was the first employee that was sent home to test the remote capacity um, of being a call taker. So they piled a bunch of laptops and wires and, and headsets into a, a backpack and, and sent me home on a Friday um, in, in March of 2020. And I, I spent a couple hours kind of sorting out things with the Wi Fi and the VPN. And eventually I was able to take a call. Um, and that really revolutionized the work and how we're able to function um, as call takers. And I don't wanna go too far into this, but fast forward to now, uh, we have a very robust remote workforce that are answering 988 throughout the state of Colorado um, we also have our call center where it, that's available for folks that, that would prefer to be in person alongside team members, you know, doing this very challenging um, and potentially exhausting work.
0: Great. And I, I want to get back to that that piece you mentioned about the remote workforce. But first, I want to hear more about kind of the success that you all are having in, in Colorado. And so we we know, we look at the, the national numbers and we see that uh, since the first few months that 980 has been live, that there's been you know, great success in the number of calls answered and the answer rate. Um, according to SAMHSA, the national answer rate back in September was at 84% still um, with an average speed of answer of about 36 seconds. Um, so tell me, you know, how is Colorado doing on these metrics? You know, How are you uh, tracking the, the success and, and, and being able to answer the calls that you're receiving?
1: You know, I think it's important to note that we've actually been doing this work for for years. And, and so, you know, the transition to 988 wasn't as if we had to kind of completely create something new from scratch. What we had to do was take our existing infrastructure and, and scale it up uh, based on anticipated call volume um, and the growth that that we expect. And so, you know, this is work that we've been actually preparing for for years. Um, I can remember when I was a a frontline call taker and, you know, there was an announcement about this 988 legislation and and this was years ago. So we had been aware of this. And and I will say that in the the year leading up to July of this past summer, uh, we had a very intense, um, robust ramp up in preparation. And a lot of that was related to hiring. Um, We had job fairs. We had kind of all administrative staff participating in interviews, um, you know, with the goal of really scaling up our staff. And so, you know, that was all work that was put in prior to the launch. And so, um, of course, we didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, there was, a, you know, a, an element of anxiety about, you know, is the call the call volume going to spike and things going to ring off the hook and you know, I will say that the actual launch was underwhelming in terms of um, volumes, but, you know, as you've noted, you know, call volume is, you know, steadily increasing. And and so um, we started out doing really well in terms of our answering metrics. Now we're kind of facing some, some challenges currently, and, and that's related to our, our, you know, maintaining staff, which I'll certainly get into later on. Uh, but overall, things have been going well. You know, I, I think we were well prepared, and that's a testament to kind of our leadership and, and preparation. But now, you know, the ongoing challenge is, is maintaining performance. You know, maintaining consistency.
2: Eric, I'm. <clears throat> this is a piece that I'm just, you know, so really fascinated by. Um, you know, having a little bit detail of of what it takes to staff a call center. Of this magnitude um, i'm wondering as you all were thinking about that staffing up um, what considerations you you maybe put in place to think about the diverse representation um, how you potentially recruited for that or, or how, did you even have questions about that or concerns or thoughts as you were looking to sort of fill seats with um, you know qualified Um, employees that would be able to do this really challenging work in a virtual infrastructure?
1: It's a great question. And, you know, I I think that one thing I've learned, um, Colorado is a diverse state in a lot of ways. You know, if you look at its geography, there is just quite a bit of difference in terms of what life is like on the Eastern part of the state in what we call the Eastern Plains, which is mostly um, small, rural farming, agricultural communities. You then have what we call the Front Range, which is our our, our population centers. You know, the, the Urban Corridor, Denver, Boulder, Colorado Springs. Then you have these mountain towns um, that are spread you know, throughout the Rockies. And so what I learned as a call taker is that if you're taking a call from somebody you know, in the Eastern Plains, in downtown Denver, or in a a ski town like Telluride. Life is different. And how you connect and relate to that person is integral to providing them, you know, adequate emotional support or a resource connection. And so what we're trying to do and, and what we've been trying to do is create a workforce that is representative of the population that we serve. And initially, that was challenging when we were a singular call center that required people to come into the office to answer the phone. If you think about that, our catchment area for potential employees was people within driving distance of Denver. And so that employee is just different than somebody that perhaps is living in the eastern plains or in a more rural section of our state. And so with the transition to offering a remote workforce, we are now able to hire and support individuals that live in all corners of our state. And that has helped us in one front in terms of just increasing the number of call takers we have, but it also increases our quality in terms of we have a representative workforce of the population that we are serving.
2: I love that you mentioned that you know i think we we oftentimes over the past 3 years you know now we've we are constantly focusing on the the challenges that covid brought to our collective workforce challenges and i don't mean to suggest that there aren't many but i agree with you one of the things that we i think similarly i found in our child welfare workforce was um you know kind of leveraging the equity challenge right there was a way to ensure that we could reach more um, diverse um, people to enter the workforce i i had folks on my team who have for example perhaps been remote for over a decade and you know said due to COVID, the fact that we're all at home like i finally feel like you know i'm on the same team you know i don't feel like the the sort of you know outsider. So it's fascinating that, um you know, with with the challenge, really came a great opportunity to better meet the service delivery needs of um, people in Colorado
0: so i'm I'm curious, Eric, as uh, you know, I think there's that positive aspect of of having this re- remote workforce now. but I, I think some of the people that may be listening may, see that there's sort of a challenge there too, right? That having this call center workforce remote and uh, all remote workforce is, is not something that, you know, is traditional in terms of a, a call center, right? And so, you know, what what are the challenges and, and successes you've had really being able to to train people remotely to do this work?
1: You're right in, in that there are certainly, you know, benefits to having a remote workforce, but there's also, you know, real challenges. And I think that is related to the work that we are doing. You know, we are answering a suicide prevention hotline. And that is hard work. It's emotionally exhausting, emotionally draining. And the benefit of being able to be alongside your coworkers in the same physical location, in solidarity, working as a team to support the needs of the callers, I think is really energizing and can make the job more sustainable. You know, I'll just kind of illustrate, you know, my personal experience having transitioned from, you know, being someone that worked in the call center to then going home and taking, you know, hotline calls from my couch. You know, going into the office was, um, it was enjoyable. You know, I'd come in and I'd make jokes with my with my friends and then we'd kind of get, the, get our serious face on and, and we'd log in and we'd take calls. And, you know, if you had a particularly challenging call, you could, you know, take a moment, go to the break room and kind of debrief with a coworker that is so skilled and active listening and and, and thoughtfully responding to you. And that whole process was very energizing. Um, And then you left work and you were able to physically leave work and go home and and do whatever it is you need to do. And so, you know, that was life as a call taker going into the, the call center. Now, when I came home, I was fortunate in that I had been, you know, involved in this work for a while. I had taken quite a few calls. And so I was aware of the challenges and kind of the difficulty of certain calls. And so I was able to navigate kind of the challenge of, of being completely alone in a HIPAA compliant workspace, um, you know, doing this really challenging work where you are having conversations with people that are, are just really, really intense. And then having to, you know, turn off my laptop and put it away and put it out of sight, out of mind and kind of, you know, flip on the TV and I'm still on my couch and I'm trying to, you know, relax and enjoy myself. So, you know, I, I know from feedback we got from from colleagues, you know that transition to working alone in this work can be very isolating and challenging, and and so it, it's a you know it's a cost benefit. The, the benefit is that we're able to uh, welcome more um, potential employees by making that remote option. But the drawback is supporting someone in this really challenging work when they are remote is unique you know it's a unique challenge and um it's something that we as employers have to be really aware of uh, because the um you know average length of employment in this space generally speaking is not long and that's a testament just to the challenge and the difficulty and the intensity of the work
2: eric i'm curious from your perspective um With maybe some of those cost saving measures of going to a remote workforce, have you all been able to reinvest resources to support the mental health needs of your workforce during the work? And maybe like a a second piece to that is from a culturally responsive lens, not just the, the lens in terms of the way in which you are responding to the callers, have you all thought about how you're also meeting the need of your workforce with a culturally responsive lens?
1: So I think this is a, an ongoing challenge. And I think that part of it is because it's the need of the moment. And let me explain that a little bit further. It's ever since I've been involved in kind of answering a crisis line and prior to working at Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners, I did it as a volunteer in Massachusetts um for 2 years. And in those 5 years, the pace and the demand of calls has been steadily growing. And so the phone is almost always ringing. And the people involved in this work are, you know, well-meaning and and want to contribute and and support others and so these are individuals that will at times go above and beyond to grab that phone and make sure that that call is answered. And so what does that do to the call taker over time? Well, you can feel trapped. You can feel as though this phone is never gonna stop ringing and I am the only person answering it. Now, in reality, that's not true. There's many other people answering it, but at times it can feel like that. And so you feel stuck, you feel trapped. And with 988 being launched, it's as though I don't know when our workforce is going to get a break. I don't know when the work is going to get easier. I don't know when the volume is going to start plateauing or even decline. And so we're kind of in the thick of it right now. And so the challenge is when we think about supporting that call taker, it's how to make their job easier. But how do we make their job easier while still answering the phone and still kind of meeting the need of the community? And so I believe that we need to make this job easier by bringing more people into this work, because if we bring more people into this work. the the workload gets distributed over more individuals and the burden on that individual call taker inevitably will lessen. And they will become a little bit more energized and a little bit more able to you know, go grab that phone when it does ring. And so this is a, a really complex problem right now because we have stakeholders and, and we have contracts and we have to meet certain metrics in terms of picking up the phone but in the medium to long term, if we're not supporting our workforce and empowering them, you know, this thing is going to struggle because nobody's going to want to work in this space.
0: I think that's that's a great I mean, that's a great perspective to have. And 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 so, yes, like I think right where we can we can we need to we have to support our workforce and make sure that they're uh, feeling supported in the work that they do and and. And I, I want to hear more about what you're, you're describing as kind of, you know, expanding the workforce, broadening those who who see themselves as uh, a people who could be answering the call um, and, and you know, how are you doing that? What what have you found to work in terms of expanding that workforce, reaching out to places to to get people kind of excited about? joining the workforce here and being a part of of 988 um and and what what maybe are still the the barriers or challenges that that are preventing you from you know even further expanding that workforce
1: so when i was hired on in 2019 the job was a full-time 40-hour position and that was my only option now that was what i wanted so that was perfect so i signed on and You know, I answered the crisis line for 40 hours a week. Um, Now, the person that wants to answer the crisis line for 40 hours a week, making, you know, not a whole lot of money, is somewhat rare. You have to really want to be there. And we did okay, because people wanted to be there. But if you think in terms of scaling up this entire operation at the state level nationally, We need to widen our catchment area of potential employees. And it needs to go beyond this 40-hour-a-week people that want to be there. Because there are people that want to be there for perhaps 20 hours a week, or four hours a week, or eight hours a week. And to give an example of kind of how this model potentially works, when I was in Massachusetts at an organization called Samaritans, We were completely staffed by volunteers. And my volunteer shift was once a week on Thursdays from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. And I was alongside, you know, three or four other fellow volunteers. And we had a pool of volunteers that was in the hundreds. And we were staffing these four-hour blocks seven days a week, 365 days a year. And so we were able to do it because you had a – a large number of individuals that were willing to contribute four hours a week. And so if you try to extend that thinking to Colorado, there are many people that want to contribute to this work, that, that want to contribute to this space, but they just don't necessarily want to, you know, make it their job and and contribute 40 hours a week. So what we need to do, and I think what others, you know, in other states should consider doing is we need to make it easier to contribute to this work. How do you do that? You offer different positions, 40 hours, 20 hours, 10 hours a week. You have interns and, and we've started growing an internship program, which I'm, I'm thrilled about because these are people that, you know, really want to be involved in this work. They want to get experience and they can contribute, you know, eight hours a week, 10 hours a week. I also think in the medium to long term, we need to accept volunteers because There are many people, and I've encountered them at our job fairs, that will come in and say, you know, I'm a, and this is a true story, I'm a retired ER psychiatrist. I would love to contribute to this work. Now, at the time, unfortunately, we were um, kind of limiting ourselves because we only had these full-time positions. And he was retired, and he didn't want to work 40 hours a week. And I totally understand that he wanted to work, you know, eight hours and we weren't able to accommodate him or his expertise because we just had we hadn't set up the infrastructure to welcome in a person like that. And so I think what we need to do is really emphasize building the infrastructure to welcome in anybody who would like to contribute to this space and then train and support them in this work, which will take even more infrastructure. But this is kind of an upfront cost to ensure that in the medium to long term, you support a diverse representative workforce that can meet the volume, that can meet the demand that is in our community right now.
2: Eric, what do you see as the greatest barrier to realizing that?
1: So I I think, you know, and I see multiple sides to, um, you know, we are kind of, you know, our organization right now is we're really extended. We are trying to answer the phone according to these metrics because this is in our contract and we have been empowered to answer 988 in the state of Colorado. So we take that really seriously. And so we are kind of in an all hands on deck mentality of, making sure this phone is answered. And while that is um, wonderful in a sense that we are kind of rising to the occasion to meet the need of this particular moment, the vision of 988 and and the vision of making mental health services more widely available and accessible in our country is that this is going to be a long-term thing. And so it's almost as if we need to kind of Pause the moment right now to think about how is this going to succeed next year, the year after, and 10 years into the future. And it's hard to stop, specifically people working in this space, because they want to grab that phone. They want to keep grabbing it. But what if we needed to pause for a moment so that we could thoughtfully put together a plan to create this infrastructure so that this job becomes easier over time, we're able to leverage this well-meaning, diverse population we have in Colorado that want to contribute, that want to answer this phone, but perhaps in a capacity that that fits their life and their demands. How do we do that? You know, how do, how do you kind of, uh, w- when it's almost as if kind of, there's a fire over here, but you need to build some, how do you manage that um, kind of concurrent responsibilities?
2: I get it. It is. I mean, I, I guess that's always the the constant balance and struggle when you think about systems improvement work, particularly, um, you know, when we're talking about life or death, right? It's how do I go from being reactive to being proactive and, you know, that, that definitely
1: is the challenge. I love that language, Carrie. That's a, you, you just eloquently described what I was going for, which is that we're in a very reactive phase right now. Yeah. Um, we are reacting to the needs of the moment. Um, but I think at some point there's going to be an inflection point where we need to transition to being proactive because that is how you sustain long-term um, sure. success.
2: Well, and it's also something that fundamentally, you know, I, I don't know that we have figured out how to do well, right? When you think about any of our um, systems that, you know, I would consider this to be no different in terms of those that are, you know, on the front line of meeting the needs of our vulnerable populations day in and day out, um, we have not, as a nation and as multiple human service systems, figured out how to get out of being reactive to being proactive well and there are you know outliers and there are places where we do it better than others but this is um really a you know a challenge that is maybe not just inherent to the workforce that is supporting 988 right this is really about the human service systems how do we how do we build infrastructures that allows us to be proactive? How do we, you know, tie together prevention? Um, You know, inevitably, if we were really um, able to effectively leverage supports from multiple systems from partners, um, that call number would drop because people were getting their needs met before that urgent moment of needing to make that call. And that's where you start getting to the proactive and, you know, kind of going further upstream. But I guess we're all trying to figure out what that looks like in a experience where it, it's constantly changing.
0: Carrie, something you mentioned, kind of leveraging cross-discipline, cross just. All the different systems working across different areas, and how leveraging kind of that uh, different expertise with different abilities and 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 different um experiences, especially across across the many different social service programs and areas,. Um, um, you know, are there, do you see sort of intersections or opportunities to leverage, especially uh, different lived experience um, in terms of how we, you know, like, like Eric's talking about, kind of expand that workforce and that pool of uh, potential helpers, people to, yeah. to answer the call?
2: I mean, I- Absolutely. And you know, just sort of you know, threading the needle of the of the alignment, I think that this is a similar conversation that we're happy having in and in, in multiple systems um you know from from child welfare to public health, um to mental health. it It's the same discussion. And I'm particularly for this work. um early in my career, I worked um. <clears throat> a clinical social worker by trade. Um, I think I mentioned that. And one of the populations that I I worked with um, were uh, women um, recovering from substance abuse, right? And um, so specifically women with, um, you know, access one, access two disorders, you know, also substance abuse, right? So dual diagnosed and truthfully you know i hadn't worked in the substance abuse um, workforce until this time i'd been in in you know clinical children and adolescents for much of that time but so you could almost in this sense see um an, an experience where you're able to engage um you know maybe folks who once needed the service right that have that are further along in their journey or family members who have been impacted by um by their own family members, who you know were were needing to reach support through nine eight eight or call centers like it. So I think it's incumbent on us to be uh, to not continue to think about the traditional roles as they've been, but to think about how we really elevate um, those who have used services and 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 maybe are in a different place, and how we create space. Carrie, I completely
1: agree with you. And I think one frustration that our organization has had is that we have a peer line. We have a quite large peer program that is completely staffed by individuals with lived experience with either mental illness or substance use. And that program has been thriving over the last couple of years. If you call the Colorado Crisis Line, which is answered by us, you have the option to select a prompt to opt in to speak with a peer, if you'd prefer. You can also speak with a crisis specialist. So you have that option, and you can uh, receive different kind of um, different levels of support based on the um, the line you select. And that's wonderful because I totally agree that, you know, what somebody can provide having lived it themselves is just so invaluable. And we should be leveraging that uh, as yeah. a means to support the needs of our community. Yeah.
2: One, that is just amazing and fascinating. I I mean, I'm Colorado never ceases to amaze me in terms of innovation that I have seen come out of Colorado over the past 20 years. So kudos to you all for that. But I love the fact that you do have data. And, you know, when when we think about the opportunities to get to being more proactive, data is just a fantastic, you know, tool that can be used, particularly when you're able to say, like, look at how many people are personally opting out, right? We could increase or we could improve um, by offering this option or even pilot it, right? You know, maybe we only pilot it on a day and like, let's just see. Where that takes us, um, could be pretty cool, but I love that 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 just even exists, right as an option. You all don't have to build that it It's there um to kind of test how you can bring it to to um, greater access through nine eight eight
1: and and honestly, you know, I, I think it's um I appreciate the kind words about colorado and and I completely agree, you know i'm I'm not from Colorado. I've only been here three years, but Um, I am very impressed with just the um, the buy in, you know, at all levels of government and and the funding and the support and the engagement with kind of this incredibly important work that we're doing. Um, I almost feel at times as though kind of the national 988 launch, um, you know, we were Colorado was positioned to kind of run faster than everyone else, but we're having to kind of slow our pace a little bit because, Um, You know, things are written into contracts, they're written into legislation, and you almost have to um, kind of adhere to that, even though it might not be the best thing for the callers that are, you know, outreaching us from Colorado. And so, you know, this is where a podcast like this is a tremendous opportunity to talk about the work that we are doing in Colorado and the capacity we have and the ability to kind of think creatively and, and meet the need of the moment and then share that with others. Um, And kind of ring the alarm bell, in a sense, and and trying to get the attention of some key decision makers, legislators, etc., so that we can make this system better. Because ultimately, I think that's what we're trying to do is, you know, take an existing service that's available, and thank goodness it's available, but let's make it better. You know, let's scale it up. Let's make it more accessible um, and and make it just – you know, appreciated and and well understood amongst our community, so that in that moment of crisis, you can just grab the phone and dial nine eight eight, and you don't have to remember the ten digit you know lifeline number.
0: Eric, I could I couldn't agree more, and I think uh, it, it's just great to hear all of this coming out of Colorado and your perspective on this. Um, and and you know, I I am hopeful that our podcast is able to reach those audiences that you said. Um, and so I you know I kind of want to. Wrap us up here. I feel like we've really covered a lot of ground today, um, and and there's probably more. There's more to talk about. There's more to dig into, and and so you know, hopefully, we'll get a future opportunity to to come back to you and hear more about how things are going and more successes that you've had in Colorado, um, uh, you know, in the coming months and years, and we'll keep keep this conversation going. Um, So thank you, Eric. Thank you, Carrie, for joining me on today's podcast. Um, It's been uh, just an outstanding conversation and um, uh, I think, you know, thank you again. And and we will hopefully keep this conversation going.
2: Absolutely, thank you, Taylor. And thank you, Eric, it's been great.
1: Yes, thank you all, thanks for having me. And and I look forward to keeping the conversation going because as you said, I think that that's a, a critical element.